A week or sure ago, I wrote a, an address which I thought I might give at this conference, but the events of the past two days have made that uh, a little inconvenient. So I thought perhaps I ought to begin by apologizing to the translators who have to change these things into foreign tongues by not giving them more time to do what they have to do now. Since last Friday, the number of people who stop and offer their arms as I walk or climb stairs has increased fourfold. (laughs) I assure you that I am not retired. I am retreaded. (laughs) There have been several times when I have looked about, as my name is mentioned with affectionate tones, as did Golden Kimball, wondering who had died. (laughs) This last part I put in after Hulder read the speech. One friend, a friend said to me last Friday, how can you bear what you have lost? I replied, I have lost nothing. Rather, I have gained. I have gained a new group of close friends and associates in a quorum which I hope will have such unity of purpose that it will be as a banner of righteousness before the world. I have gained seven leaders far beyond me in ability, strength, and wisdom, which had there not been this enlargement I could not have had. I have gained the opportunity to serve rather than to direct. In that service, my arm will extend Arms will extend in the wide world as far as I can find the strength to extend them. My upward reach will be as high as I can see. Now the only limit to my personal service which I myself originate is my strength of body, facility of mind, and compassion of heart. I have gained a personal knowledge and understanding of what the meaning of the meaning of the words, which were just quoted by Brother Simpson and stated by President J. Reuben Clark, not where I serve, but how. I have gained a chance to pause briefly and measure what I have learned in my association with the First Council over the many years as its members have done their work and passed on. I was a soldier in a war in which the President, B. H. Roberts, was the chaplain of the regiment. I have listened in happy enjoyment to the wisdom as well as the humor of President J. Golden Kimball, not from the pulpit but at home. I served for 26 months as the close servant of President Samuel O'Banion. I have thrilled many times, both publicly and privately, to the eloquence of President Ray L. Pratt. I respected President John H. Taylor long before he was a member of the First Council. I have been lifted by the powerful voice of Oscar Kirkham, as you have. I have basked in the absolute faith of Milton R. Hunter. I still value the memory of the friendship of Richard L. Evans, as well as the quiet wisdom of Anton R. Ivins. There are others, many of them. The choice men and close friends of the Council with whom I have 
been associated since 1945. I have not mentioned the long years of listening to the wisdom and faith of my grandfather, Dr. Simi Bu Young, who served many years as a senior president of this council, and my uncle, Leva Edgar Young, with whom I spent many happy hours all during my growing years and much of my adult life. All of these have hoped, worked, and prayed that the first quorum would be organized. I have lost nothing. I look forward with happy anticipation to my next adventure in gaining. So I say to the First Council, as was said in David Copperfield, Barkis is willing. Before I close, I must say that throughout the process of the changes you have witnessed, we have been kept informed and have been consulted constantly for our feelings and input by President Kimball and his counselors. This thing is not, as Paul said, been done in a corner. It is right. It is inspired. Its time has come. It could not be stayed. I sat in the temple Wednesday last and looked at the two presiding quorums, the first presidency and the twelve. I had borne in on me the great increase in the power of President Kimball as in the third general quorum he placed some of the best trained, most experienced, and loyal men in the Church. It thrilled me to see something come to pass for which we had so long hoped. Anton Ivan said to me shortly before his death that he wished the first quorum could be organized before he died. For a time I thought also that I would see this great event from the spirit world. I am grateful that I have been able to see it in mortality. When I get there, I'll report to President Ivins that he should have stayed here a few years longer. <laughs> I believe there are some things yet to be done as a member of the First Quorum that only I have the talent to do. The same is true for my other colleagues who, with me, join the Quorum. If I can exercise that talent and perform well, I shall be satisfied. I know what has been done by the prophet of the Lord, exercising his inspired right to organize to fit the circumstance of 1976, is right. It is my hope to continue to serve where he would have me serve. It will give me complete joy to see the Church accelerate in its missionary work as this new quorum presidency and this quorum swing into action. This is the Church of Jesus Christ. I mean by that it belongs to Him. He restored it personally by calling Joseph Smith. I sustain President Kimball and his counselors. I do more than that. I love them more than I find words to express. I pray that we all may satisfy them with our work from now on. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. amen. I shall speak of a subject which strikes dread, even terror, into the hearts of most men. It is something we fear, of which we are sorely afraid, and from which most of us would flee if we could. I shall speak of the passing of the immortal soul into the eternal realms ahead. 
of that dread day when we shall shuffle off this mortal coil and go back to the dust from whence we came. I shall speak of death, mortal death, the natural death, the death of the body, and of the state of the souls of men when this final consummation is imposed upon them. Manifestly, we must all be guided and enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit as we step into this realm, this realm of which carnal men know so little, but of which so much has been revealed to the saints of the Most High. I pray that my words, spoken by the power of the Holy Ghost, shall sink deeply into your hearts by the power of that same Spirit, so that you will know of their truth and verity. For a text, I take these sweet and consoling words of biblical origin. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. To them I append Paul's pointed and painful pronouncement, The sting of death is sin. Death can be comforting and sweet and precious, or it can be thrust upon, uh, can thrust upon us all the agonies and sulfurous burnings of an endless hell. And we, each of us individually, make the choice as to which it shall be. If we are to place death in its proper perspective in the eternal scheme of things, we must learn first the purposes of life. We must know whence we came, whose we are, and why he placed us here. Only then can we envision whither we shall yet go in the providences of him who made us. We know, because the Lord has revealed it in this our day, that we are the spirit children of an exalted, glorified being, a holy man who has a body of flesh and bones and who is our Father in heaven. We know that the name of the kind of life he lives is eternal life and that it consists of living in the family unit and of possessing all power, all might, and all dominion. We know that he ordained and established the plan of salvation to enable us to advance and progress from our spirit state to the same state of glory, honor, and exaltation which he himself possesses. We know that the Father's plan called for the creation of this earth, where we could dwell as mortals, receive bodies made of the dust of the earth, and undergo the tests and trials which now face us. We know that this plan of salvation included provisions for the fall of man with its consequent temporal and spiritual death, for a redemption from death through the atoning sacrifice of the Son of God, and for an inheritance of eternal life for all the obedient. We know that this great plan of progression called for a birth which would provide a mortal tabernacle for our eternal spirits and for a death which would free those spirits from the frailties, diseases, and weaknesses of mortality. And may I say that this life was never intended to be easy. It is a probationary estate in which we are tested physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually. We are subject to disease and decay. 
We are attacked by cancer, leprosy, and contagious diseases. We suffer pain and sorrow and afflictions. Disasters strike, floods sweep away our homes, famines destroy our food, plagues and wars fill our graves with dead bodies and our broken homes with sorrows. We are called upon to choose between the revealed word of God and the soul-destroying postulates of the theoretical sciences. Temptations, the lusts of the flesh, evils of every sort, all these are part of the plan and must be faced by every person privileged to undergo the experiences of mortality. The testing processes of mortality are for all men, saints and sinners alike. Sometimes the tests and trials of those who have received the gospel far exceed any imposed upon worldly people. Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his only son. Lehi and his family left their lands and wealth to live in a wilderness. Saints in all ages have been commanded to lay all that they have upon the altar, sometimes even their very lives. As to the individual trials and problems that befall any of us, all we need say is that in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things and who does all things well, all of us are given the particular and specific tests that we need in our personal situations. It is to us, his saints, that the Lord speaks when he says, I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant even unto death that you may be found worthy. For if ye will not abide in my covenant, ye are not worthy of me. Now what of death, of the passing of loved ones, of our life beyond the grave? Our scriptures say, Death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator. Where the true saints are concerned, there is no sorrow in death except that which attends a temporary separation from loved ones. Birth and death are both essential steps in the unfolding drama of eternity. We shouted for joy at the privilege of becoming mortal because without the tests of mortality there could be no eternal life. We now sing praises to the great Redeemer for the privilege of passing from this life, because without death and the resurrection, we could not be raised in immortal glory and gain eternal life. When the faithful saints depart from this life, they are received into a state of happiness which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow, and they remain in this state until the day of their resurrection. When the wicked and ungodly depart from this life, they continue in their wickedness and rebellion. That same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time ye go out of this life, the scripture says, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. Nephi said to members of the Church, having a perfect brightness of hope 
and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. That is to say, all the faithful saints, all of those who have endured to the end, depart this life with the absolute guarantee of eternal life. There is no equivocation, no doubt, no uncertainty in our minds. Those who have been true and faithful in this life will not fall by the wayside in the life to come. If they keep their covenants here and now and depart this life firm and true in the testimony of our blessed Lord, they shall come forth with an inheritance of eternal life. We do not mean to say that those who die in the Lord and who are true and faithful in this life must be perfect in all things when they go into the next sphere of existence. There was only one perfect man, the Lord Jesus, whose Father was God. There have been many righteous souls who have attained relative degrees of perfection, and there have been great hosts of faithful people who have kept the faith and lived the law and departed this life with the full assurance of an eventual inheritance of eternal life. There are many things that they will do and must do even beyond the grave to merit the fullness of the Father's kingdom in that glorious day when the great King shall say unto them, Come, ye blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But what we are saying is that when the saints of God chart a course of righteousness, when they gain sure testimonies of the truth and divinity of the Lord's work, when they keep the commandments, when they overcome the world, when they put first in their lives the things of God's kingdom, when they do all these things and then depart this life, though they have not yet become perfect, they shall nonetheless gain eternal life in our Father's kingdom, and eventually they shall be perfect as God their Father and Christ his Son are perfect. Is it any wonder that the scriptures say, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Truly such is precious, wondrous, and glorious. For when the saints die, added souls have assured themselves of exaltation with him who provided the way for them to advance and become like him. Is it any wonder that the scriptures say, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, for they shall rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Truly, it is a blessed occasion, for the faithful saints have filled the full measure of their creation, and a gracious God will give them all things in due course. Is it any wonder that the Lord says to his saints, Those that die in me shall not taste of death for it shall be sweet unto them. 
Is it any wonder that the prophet Joseph Smith said such things as, When men are prepared, they are better off to go hence. Those who have died in Jesus Christ may expect to enter into all that fruition of joy when they come forth, which they possessed or anticipated here. In the resurrection, some are raised to be angels, others are raised to become gods. Now we do not seek death, though it is part of the merciful plan of the great Creator. Rather, we rejoice in life and desire to live as long as we can be of service to our fellow men. Faithful saints are a leaven of righteousness in a wicked world. But sometimes the Lord's people are hounded and persecuted. Sometimes he deliberately lets his saints linger and suffer in both body and spirit to prove them in all things and to see if they will abide in his covenant even unto death, that they may be found worthy of eternal life. If such be the lot of any of us, so be it. But come what come may, anything that befalls us here in mortality is but for a small moment, and if we are true and faithful, God will eventually exalt us on high. All our losses and sufferings will be made up to us in the resurrection. We shall be raised from mortality to immortality, from corruption to incorruption. We shall come forth from the grave in physical perfection. Not a hair of the head shall be lost, and God shall wipe away all tears. If we have lived the gospel, we shall come forth with celestial bodies which are prepared to stand the glory of a celestial kingdom. We shall continue to live in the family unit, and as Joseph Smith said, that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. We rejoice in life, we rejoice in death, we have no desires except to do the will of him whose we are and to dwell with him in his kingdom at the appointed time. Oh, that it might be with each of us, as it was with that valiant apostle of old who said, as the hour of his death approached, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. In Ezekiel we read, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. 
Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As we near the close of this momentous conference, I would like to address my remarks to all who teach. I would like to discuss the role of the impact teacher. President David O. McKay said, There is no greater responsibility in the world than the training of a human soul. A great part of the personal stewardship of every parent and teacher in the Church is to teach and train. How well we fill this divinely commissioned task may well have eternal implications for many. One of America's philosophers, John Dewey, says, The deepest urge in human nature is the desire to be important. It is annoying, unfaltering hunger. People sometimes become invalids in order to win sympathy and to get a feeling of importance. Some authorities declare that people may actually go insane in order to find in that dreamland of insanity the feeling of importance that has been denied them in the harsh world of reality. What miracles an impact teacher can achieve by giving honest appreciation and a sense of self-worth? The parent or teacher who honestly satisfies this heart hunger will hold a child or a class in the palm of his hand. Some years ago, when Alden Porter was president of the Boise North Stake, he dropped by the home of Glenn Clayton, who was the scoutmaster in his ward. Glenn and his son were working together repairing a bicycle. President Porter stood and talked to them for a few minutes and then left. Several hours later, he returned, and the father and son were still working on the bike together. President Porter said, Glenn, with the wages you make per hour, you could have bought a new bike, considering the time you have spent repairing this old one. Glenn stood up and said, I'm not repairing a bike. I'm training a boy. That year, 21 boys achieved the rank of Eagle Scout in his troop. Impact teachers do not teach lessons. They teach souls. Remembering why educators failed, someone furnished a rhyming explanation. College professor says, Such rawness in in a pupil is a shame. High school preparation is to blame. High school teacher says, Good heavens, what crudity! The boy's a fool. The fault, of course, is the grammar school. And grade school teacher cries, From such stupidity may I be spared. They send them to me so unprepared. And kindergarten teacher says, Such lack of training did I never see. What kind of woman must the mother be? Mother laments, Poor helpless child, he is not to blame. His father's folks are just the same. (laughs) Recently, after a priesthood leadership meeting at a state conference where I spoke about a father's role with his family, a man came up and introduced himself. He said he was going to write to me, and a few days later I received this letter, and I quote only part. Dear Bishop Featherstone, you possibly don't recall the brief conversation we had on the stand at the state conference last Saturday night. I told you... I had a 17-year-old son to whom I hadn't spoken a kind word in nine years. And I was going home and tell him how much I loved him. He has caused his mother and me many hours of heartbreak, especially in the last two years. He and I haven't had a father-son relationship in over half his life. Isn't that a frightening thought? However. The little unhappiness he has caused us is nothing compared to the lonely hours he must have spent because of me all those years. The many nights he went to bed feeling so unloved and unwanted by me, his father. Ezekiel said, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and it has set the children's teeth on edge. 
paraphrasing presently Lee's statement, the greatest teaching we will ever do is within the walls of our own home. We have a sacred trust to teach our children the principles of truth, but equally important is to love and care in, in following the way of the Master. Impact teachers are not cast in a certain mold in the spirit world and introduced on earth seen at just the proper time. Every leader in the kingdom can become an impact teacher. Your notoriety may not reach much past the quorum or class, but your influence may be felt in the eternities. We sometimes get our priorities all mixed up, as stated by a national columnist in her column. I am indebted to President John Sonnenberg for this article. When Mike was three, he wanted a sandbox, and his father said, There goes the yard. We'll have kids over here day and night, and they'll throw sand, and it'll kill the grass for sure. And Mike's mother said, It'll come back. When Mike was five, he wanted a jungle gym with swings that would take his breath away and bars to take him to the summit. And his father said, Good grief. I've seen those things in backyards. And do you know what the yards look like? Mud holes in a pasture. Kids digging their gym shoes in the ground. It'll kill the grass. And Mike's mother said, It'll come back. Between breaths, when Daddy was blowing up the plastic swimming pool, he warned, They'll track water everywhere and they'll have a million water fights, and you won't be able to take out the garbage without stepping in mud up to your neck. And we'll have the only brown lawn on the block. And Mike's mother said, It'll come back. When Mike was 12, he volunteered his yard for a campout. As the boys hoisted the tents and drove in the spikes, Mike's father said, You know those tents and all those big feet are going to trample down every single blade of grass, don't you? Don't bother to answer. I know what you're going to say. It'll come back. <laughs> Just when it looked as if this new seed might take root, winter came, and the sled runners beat it into ridges. And Mike's father shook his head and said, I've never asked for much in this life, only a patch of grass. <laughs> and Mike's mother said, It'll come back. <laughs> now Mike is 18. The lawn this year is beautiful green and alive and rolling out like a carpet along the drive where gym shoes had trod along the garage where bicycles used to fall, and around the flower beds where little boys used to dig with teaspoons. But Mike's father doesn't notice. He looks anxiously beyond the yard and asks, Mike will come back, won't he? The impact teacher cares with an attitude of pure charity. The impact teacher asks, What would the Savior do when faced with this problem? In 1966, President Kimball addressed the seminary and institute teachers and supervisors. He titled his talk, What I Hope You Will Teach My Grandchildren. His talk was filled with profound truths. Every teacher in the Church should read and apply it. Quote, so I salute you, the trainers and inspirers of youth. Your responsibility is awesome. Your opportunities to become saviors near limitless. We do not excuse the parents and their failures but we must place the burden upon your strong backs to carry on. It must be brilliant and effective. I am depending on you to teach my offspring. I have 26 grandchildren. One died an infant and went to the celestial kingdom. Two are married and finished with their conventional schooling, but we still have 23 to be taught by you. Now you can see why I am so concerned about the men who will be employed and why I hope they will be men of valor and faith, of forcefulness and courage, and of example. However, I expect nothing more for my own than for the other, other multitudes of Latter-day Saint youth. Then in conclusion he said, What do I wish you to teach my grandchildren and all others? Above all, 
I will hope you will teach them faith in the living God and in his only begotten Son. Not a superficial intellectual kind of acceptance, but a deep spiritual inner feeling of dependence and closeness. I hope that you will teach righteousness pure and undefiled. I hope that if any of God's children are out in spiritual darkness, you will come to them with a lamp and light their way. If they are out in the cold of spiritual bleakness with its frigidity penetrating their bones, you will come to them holding their hands a little way. You will walk miles and miles with them, lifting them, strengthening them, encouraging them, and inspiring them. Yes, we must teach truths of the gospel, as President Kimball has said, to our youth with that kind of conviction. An impact teacher will be pure. President Kimball said at the Regional Representative Seminar a year ago, it takes a clean fountain to send forth pure and clear water. The work of the impact teacher is first and with grading and lasting emphasis to save the soul of the student. If we do all else and lose the boy or girl, we have failed in our sacred and holy stewardship. Let us declare as Job, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron and pen and lead in the rock forever, that the work of the impact teacher is to save every soul in the class or quorum. Dr. Gustav Eckstein, one of the world's renowned ornithologists, worked in the same laboratory for over 25 years. He bred and crossbred species of birds. He kept meticulous records on the varieties and hybrids of birds in his laboratory. Each day when he would enter his laboratory, he would go down two or three steps to the stereo. He would put on classical music and turn the volume up very loud. Then he would go about his work. The birds would sing along with the classical music. At the end of the day, about 5.30 p.m., he would turn off the stereo and leave for home. After 25 years, he had to hire a new custodian. After Dr. Eckstein left the laboratory, the new custodian thought the place should be aired out, so he opened all the windows. The next morning, when Dr. Eckstein went into his laboratory, he saw the open windows and noted that every bird had flown out during the night. He was devastated. His life's work ruined by sort of habit or instinct. He went to the stereo and turned the classical music up very loud. Then he went and sat down on the steps, put his head in his hands, and wept. The strains of the music carried out through the open windows, through the trees, and down the streets. In a few moments, Dr. Eckstein heard a fluttering of wings. He looked up and saw the birds were beginning to come back into the laboratory through the open windows. Dr. Eckstein said, And every bird came back. Our youth will hear the classical music of the gospel, and if they have an impact teacher, every boy and girl will come back. God bless you, great hosts of parents, bishops, ironic priesthood young women, seminary, Sunday school, teachers who have been raised up for this special time with a special mission as impact teachers to this great generation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. The Savior chose a very dramatic moment in which to emphasize the value of missionary work. He gave the option to his apostles, the choice of their hearts. Peter said that he preferred to depart speedily from this life and be with the Savior in his kingdom. John the Beloved chose to stay behind and bring souls unto Christ, and the Savior Imagine the importance of that beautiful moment, Peter choosing to be with the Savior in his kingdom above, 
And yet the Savior turned and said to Peter, John, my beloved, has chosen a greater thing. The greatest thing of my life has been missionary work, proselyting work, and I am tremendously honored to be included in this historic missionary quorum of 70s. And on this occasion, I would like to pay tribute to those who have meant so much to me in my life, my sweet companion, who is a great missionary, who takes great joy in serving the Lord, to my children, whom I love and appreciate and who are an honor to me and my wife, to a sweet departed companion, long since on the other side of the veil, to parents that I honor and love here today, and to a father also on the other side of the veil, to the Latin Lamanite people, a people of prophecy and a people of promise that I have had the honor and the privilege of working among and living among for over a quarter of a century. And at this time, hallowed pulpit of the prophets, I wish to bear my testimony that our common Father in heaven lives and loves us and answers our prayers, that Jesus is the Christ, the creator of this world, the creator of worlds without number, who suffered, died for our sins, resurrected on that third day, who stands at the head of this church which bears his name. And I testify that the gospel was restored by Joseph Smith in these the latter days, and that we are today guided and directed by a living prophet of the Lord who has my most affectionate loyalty and obedience, as do all of these great brethren who sit before us. I offer that witness, this testimony, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, it's impossible to try to describe the feelings of my heart at this time and during this past week. Someone tried to describe, I guess, some of the feelings that had been going through their mind. They said, I'm not sure that I was nervous, but I was incredibly alert. The one thing I do know for sure is that I will never be the same. To be called by a prophet of God and to receive a commission under his hand with the Brethren of the Council of the Twelve is a unique experience which will last me for a lifetime. And may I join Brother Welch in paying homage to those who have made so many contributions to my life to make this a possible experience. There sits an elderly couple in their 90s in front of a television set in Rexburg today who I'm sure feels that part of their longevity was to see a fulfillment of this hour. I pay my respects to my wife and companion who has always sustained me and whatever calling has come to me as I have tried to sustain her in those things which she has been called to do. 
And when President Kimball asked me in my numb silence if I wanted to go home and think over the proposition, I was pleased to say that was a decision which my wife and I made at the time of our marriage. And so I could answer in the affirmative. And then let me say that to my family who is here, that this, as other callings which we have received, is a family calling. We recognize that we have responsibility to each other, that families of church leaders live in glass houses, as it were, and that we will do our best to live worthy of the blessings which have come to us and to try to live as close to the principles of the gospel as we can. Now, may I add my testimony that God has borne witness to my soul that sitting behind me is a choice and holy prophet of God, that we are the recipients of one of the greatest blessings in the history of the world to be living at this time when the Lord has called for all who would hear his voice to come and be partakers of his spirit and his righteousness and enjoy the peace and the prosperity within his kingdom here and eternal life hereafter. May I bear witness that I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our eternal Savior. And may I express my love and appreciation to the Prophet Joseph and all those who have given their lives and so much that we might enjoy this hour in peaceful assembly. Now I pray the Lord's blessings upon all of us that we may fulfill the righteous desires of our hearts and do his work in righteousness. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Beloved brothers and sisters, just a brief word in conclusion at marvel marvelous conference. There's been a generous outpouring of the Lord to all of the numerous speakers who have addressed us. We've been greatly stirred by our famous and lovable tabernacle choir as they have used their rich talents to bless us with heavenly symphonies. And to the other groups of singers, we're deeply grateful. They've enriched our services and made them pleasing to us and to the Lord. To all others who have contributed, we are deeply grateful. We have made some changes in the general authorities, and we hope that all of our people are sympathetic and approve in their hearts. The sermons from the Brethren have developed almost every theme and subject, and they have been rich and full of meat. We have been greatly pleased with all of their contributions. May we, may we mention a few. President Tanner has relived for us the area conferences of Europe. Similar ones we have carried to the Orient and South America and Mexico and to the South Seas. President Romney has given us the word of the Lord on honesty and integrity and companion themes. In between the choir's presentations, we've heard excerpts from the sermons of our brother, beloved brother Paul. 
we were given a picture of the temptations of Jesus and have seen with the eyes of an apostle the families that are forever. We have partly relived the bicentennial through the eyes of one of the brethren and have had the way of life pointed out to us. Delightful experiences from life have been used by the brethren to point the way and direct our footsteps and great lessons have been taught by parable, quote, and exhortation. The standards of the church have been emphasized over and over and warm appeal from the brethren for us to live God's commandments. We've been taught as fathers and mothers and bishops how to prepare missionaries to attain excellence. One of our favorite songs has these words from the Master. He marked the path and led the way and every point defines to life and light and endless day where God's full presence shines. Why we should be so concerned about a flickering candle when there is an unextinguishable light at hand for the earning. At least the numerous testimonies of the brethren of the ages are positive and uniform and uplifting and faith-building and hope-building, and they encourage worthiness. These lines I like. Canst thou take the barren soil and with all thy pain and toil make lilies grow? Have faith in God, he can. Canst thou paint the clouds above and all sunset colors weave into the sky? Thou canst not, O powerless man. Have faith in God, he can. Canst thou still the troubled heart and make all care and trials depart from out our soul? Thou canst not, thou helpless man. Have faith in God, he can. And we wonder why we fail with all of the exhortation and explanations given us by the numerous brethren who have pled with us. We can understand why the Savior must have been disappointed and why he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father. And then he said again, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And I hope that theme will follow us to our homes and to our future lives. Again, as we close this great conference, let us implore the hearer of these messages to do the things which the Lord says and which have been so clearly outlined during this conference. Recently, a prominent doctor, knowing of my surgery and cancer treatments, exhibited a little surprise at my assuming this great responsibility of presidency. He was not a member of the church and evidently had never known the pull and the pressure one feels who has a positive assurance that the Lord is not playing games but has a serious program for man and for his glory. The Lord knows what he is doing and that all his moves are appropriate and right. And I was surprised also that any man would wonder 
and question the work of the Lord. We who have the positive assurance and testimony of the divinity of this work do not question the ways of or determinations of the Lord. I know without question that God lives and have a feeling of sorrow for those people living in the world in, their, in the gray area of doubt who do not have such an assurance. I know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of our Heavenly Father and that he assisted in the creation of man and all that serves man, including the earth and all that is in the world. And he was the Redeemer of mankind and the Savior of this world and the author of the plan of salvation for all men and the exalted of all who live on the live the laws he has given. He it was who organized this vehicle, the, this true church, and called it after his name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that in it are all the saving graces. I know that there is contact of the Lord with his prophets, and that he reveals the truth today his, to his servants as he did in the days of Adam and Abraham and Moses and Peter and Joseph and the numerous others throughout time. God's messages of light and truth are as surely given to man today as in any other dispensation. Since Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, the Lord has been eager, eager to re re reveal truth and right to his people. But there have been many times when man would not listen. And of course, where there is no ear, there is no voice. I know the gospel truths will save and exalt mankind if men will accept the truth and fully live up to their commitments and covenants. I know this is true, and I bear this testimony to you, my beloved brothers and sisters and friends in all the world. I urge all men to seriously accept and conform their lives totally to the precepts of the gospel. And I bear this witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.